welcome to For the Love of Dogs with Dennis Wolf. Well, we are just having another snowstorm here in the Northeast. And, you know, it's pretty funny how many people are complaining that their dogs are hyper, that their dogs are running around. Oh, my dog was so well behaved and now all of a sudden he's just terrible. Well, part of that is you're not walking him. You know I've talked to you years and years and years about our concept of hunt, wait, eat, which is natural canine behavior rehabilitation. And uh, my book called Happens, S-H-H-H, Happens, Dog Behavior 101, which talks about how dogs think, how dogs do things and why they do what they do. Well, you have to remember that when you stop taking your dog for a walk, and I understand, you know, if you, you have a bad knee or you're older or you have your kids or somebody's home and you can't go out, I understand when you have a fenced yard or an electric fence, but you still can simulate that important hunt walk every day, twice a day before you feed your dog. What you want to do, the hunt, wait, eat, is the concept that you're taking your dog out to find food. Now, of course, we go to the refrigerator and there's food, but think about it if you or somebody didn't go to the store, in effect, hunting for food. And if you didn't go to the store and then, you know, get food, well, um, where would the food come from? This isn't the Jetsons where, you know, you have the food just magically appears in the refrigerator or in the freezer. You have to go get it. So think of the concept of hunting and think of the concept of getting food out of the refrigerator when no one has filled the refrigerator. You can't eat it if you haven't caught it or found it or shopped for it or hunted for it. So dogs are dogs and dogs do what dogs do because they're dogs. They're not people. Even we have to hunt or find food before we eat it. You can't give something to a dog or give something to a child or give something to anybody unless you've already secured it, gotten it. So in a dog's mind, when he goes out for that walk, if he's out ahead of you, well, he, in effect, is the leader. And if he's the leader because he's in front, kind of like a flock of Canadian geese, it's really Canada geese named after Lewis Canada, but we call them Canadian geese, a flock of Canadian geese, you always have that V formation and that the vertex, not polar vortex, but vertex of the flock, you always have one goose. And whichever goose that is that's in that spot is the one who leads everyone on that trek. Now, think of the same concept of a pack of wolves, a pack of wild dogs, really almost any kind of animal that is a predator, not prey animals, but predators. And a predator has to get out there. If you're the one who's providing and protecting, in effect, you're the one in charge. You're the, the boss. You're the guardian, okay? If you're that leader, you have to be out ahead because, first of all, you have to get an undisturbed scent, right? You have your nose up or you have your nose down, and you're constantly looking for food. And while you're out there, you're protecting. So this whole concept of hunt, wait, eat is very primal. It's not a concept that I made up. It's, you know, it's a concept that's kept us alive and kept animals alive for hundreds of thousands of years. Otherwise, they wouldn't be here. So when you stop giving your dog that simulated walk, that hunt that's supposed to be in a dog's mind, they know it's 
Hey, we got to go find food. And how can you possibly go find food if you haven't gone for a hunt? So the food doesn't magically appear, right? If if the, the store doesn't have it and you, the delivery on Amazon doesn't come, guess what? You don't have food. So animals pick up on that and dogs specifically will pick up on that concept that you are suddenly not going out hunting. You're not taking them for a walk. Therefore, you must not be in charge anymore. And that's where we start getting behavioral issues for that and many other reasons. But primarily, that's one of the main reasons. So how do you do that when you've got, it looks beautiful outside. You see outside my window, I live in the middle of a park, literally. And I'm looking out the window and I see no cars. I see a beautiful 500-acre park. And I look out my other window and I see the rest of a beautiful 450-acre park, 500-acre park. And what I don't see is anybody walking dogs. And haven't seen anybody walking dogs since we got all the snow. Maybe one or two here and there, but most people are not going out. If they are, they're taking really short walks. So what can you do to simulate that walk? It's pretty simple. Put your gentle leader on if you need to do that to keep your dog beside you or behind you. That's the topic of a whole other section of our of our conversation. But put a leash on, put a collar, put whatever you do, and walk your dog around the inside of your house. Any dog who has possessive issues or um, aggression issues or protecting an area or protecting food or stealing something and protecting it, any of those dogs, you should have them on a leash. You start your walk walk around the perimeter of your house, the inside of your house, go through every room. I know it sounds crazy. Just trust me on this. Walk around your office, walk around the bedroom, walk around the next bedroom, walk around the living room, walk around the dining room, walk around the kitchen. Don't stop. Don't give them treats. Pretend you're outside, you're walking and you're hunting for food. Then you can let your dog outside. You take him out on the leash. You go first. Take him outside. Let him, okay, let him go potty. He comes back in. Clip him back on the leash. Walk him around the house a little bit again. Same thing. And by doing that, what you're doing is you're kicking in the dog's natural sense of hunting. But instead of your dog just going out the door, you just open the door and he goes flying out without you and he goes out first. Well, you wouldn't let your toddler run out your front door. God forbid a car is coming. You're not going to have a toddler very long. You're going to have a disaster. So imagine that with your dog, you've got to take your dog out for a walk. Once your dog is walking and going out, even if it's not going outside, outside, you're walking and you're simulating that hunt. Then the dog goes to potty, bring him back in. And, you know, we'll teach you that in future weeks about the door rule. You're going to bring them back in. Once you bring them back in, walk them a little bit longer, then take the leash and collar and everything off. Tell them, okay, he's going to go grab a drink of water, and then he's going to go lay down. From that point, you're going to wait about 15 to 45 minutes. Now, what does that mean? Why do we have to wait 15 to 45 minutes? Is that magic? No. Well, we know that if we're walking a dog and we go for a long walk, he might need 45 minutes till his body settles down, until he's not panting so that he doesn't get sick. But 
if we have another situation instead, let's say you're walking him around the house for three minutes, you obviously don't have to wait for him to stop panting. So you can wait 15 minutes. Now, what does that 15 to 45 minutes represent in a dog's mind? Kind of crazy, but it represents that someone else is eating before you are. You don't have to eat in front of the dog. And as a matter of fact, there was an obedience trainer, this this muscle guy that was down in Maryland. I have no idea what his name is, and I wouldn't rat him out anyway, but it was just, oh, my gosh. He said, I eat in front of my dog, and I make him look. I'll hold his head on. Make him watch me eat. He was the same genius that said that you have to bite a dog in the ear to tell it that you're in charge. So I had said to him at the time, I guess you don't really work with very aggressive dogs. And he goes, yeah, I do. Why would you say that? I looked at him. I said, you have a face left because he said he did it to a Rottweiler. I'm like, oh, my gosh, you're lucky you didn't do it to the wrong dog because you would not have a face left. Well, that's the issue, right? We don't want to be abusive to the animals. We want to go with nature. We want them to be able to understand. It's not about, you know, dominating the dog or hurting the dog or shaking a penny can at them or squirting them in the face or yelling or screaming or throwing things. Those, all those things are, or the air horns, you know, all of these things are just man-made basically crap that, you know, somebody's trying to make money. It's like a a get-rich-quick scheme. So why would you do that? Why would you actually look at something like that and say, gee, I'm going to throw this can of pennies at my dog? Because what you start to do is break down the relationship that you had with the dog. And once a dog doesn't trust you, you've got a whole different set of problems. You don't want a dog who's going to be afraid of you. You want a dog who's going to trust you, who's going to respect you, who's going to love you, and who's going to follow you, not out of fear, not out of being intimidated, but out of respect and love and the fact that he feels safe and secure with you. So if you're going to start intimidating or antagonizing your dog or throwing things or squirting him or yelling at him or kicking him or hurting him in any way, he's not going to trust you. He's not going to follow you. So why does that have anything to do with, hey, Jen, it's like, wait a minute, I don't get it. You're telling us that we have to walk our dog before he eats. Why? Well, again, because in nature, whoever, when you killed something or found something, whoever found it wouldn't necessarily, or who killed it, wouldn't necessarily be the one who ate it first. Whoever the leader, the the one in charge, the guardian, the protector, the provider, is the one who is going to eat first. Why? Because that's how nature is. Now, think about for a minute humans. We imperfect, incredibly imperfect humans. If we had, let's say, a 90-year-old grandparent and we had a newborn baby and we had a young husband and wife and then we had the grandparents that were, let's say, 60 and everybody was out in, in like an area, let's say a survival area, okay? And we're starting to run low on supplies. Who would humans feed first? Well, of course, humans would feed the baby first, right? Because that makes sense. You feed the baby first. Then we would feed the 90-year-old. Then we would probably feed the 60-year-old, the, the grandparents. Then we would probably feed the mother, and we might feed the mother 
before we fed the grandparents, if she was uh, breastfeeding or if she was taking care of the baby. And then somewhere along the line, if there were food left, if there were food left, the dad, the strongest one, the leader, in fact, would eat. Well, what happens if there's not enough food? Well, I guess the dad doesn't get to eat. Well, what happens over the course of weeks and months? He starts to get thin and weaker, and there's still no food, and he dies. So now he's gone. So now, okay, who's next in charge? Well, maybe the 60-year-old grandfather. Okay, so now he's in charge, okay? And we go through the same thing. If there's a limited amount of food, what happens? We feed the baby, we feed the 90-year-old, we feed maybe the grandma, then we feed the mom, and grandpa, bye-bye, grandpa, because now we have no food, grandpa's gone. And it goes down the line to the point where the last one left is, or two left are the 90-year-old and the baby. How are they going to hunt and go find food? Maybe the 90-year-old can toddle around or or if it's a 90-year-old like some people, like my friend Cindy's uh, dad, who's like 96 or 97 or, I mean, amazing. But how's the baby going to find food? And then that's where the end of the species. That's what Darwin was talking about with survival of the fittest. It's survival of the ones in that species or species that are strongest who will survive and species themselves who are stronger and will survive. So we can see that that's probably not the best way to keep a species alive. So what do we do then when we have animals? Okay, let's say you have dogs, wild dogs, or you have wolves, or you have pretty much any other species, right? Well, let's say there's a little bit of a limited food supply. Who would eat first? The leader, the strongest one, would definitely eat first. And then probably the next one would be the young males, potentially. And then probably the mother, right? The young, the, the mothers, the uh, baby's parents, baby's moms. And then maybe next would be, you know, the next weakest and all the way down to the very young and the very old. Okay, so what happens? There's not enough food. The very old are gone. And let's say there's still not a lot of food. Well, we get the next one. So now let's say the middle-aged females who are not reproductively able to produce anymore, okay? Uh, maybe they're the next group to go. But the last ones are going to be the two strongest or the ones that are required for the species to continue. And that's going to be the strongest male and the strongest females. So that's basically why dogs do what they do. So that's why when you stop taking them out and they're no longer hunting, and they're not looking for food, all of a sudden, they're like, huh, okay, I guess I must be in charge because nobody's hunting for food anymore, and I don't have to hunt for my food, and it just shows up, and it gets served to me right in front of me every day in the morning and every night at night, and I get all this food, and I don't have to do anything. I don't have to find it. I don't have to hunt for it. I don't have to help the pack find food. And that's where a lot of behavioral issues start. So you, if you are one of those people who is nodding your head right now and going like, yeah, that's pretty much exactly what happened since 
COVID because everybody ran out and got COVID puppies and now they're starting to dump them in shelters because I knew this would happen. I told everybody this a year ago. People are going to go get dogs because they're home. And then as soon as they get their job back, they're going to, a lot of people are going to dump their dogs and they're going to realize, oh, this cute fluffy puppy is still peeing and pooping in my house because I don't know anything about dogs. And I'm not listening to Janice on the radio who would have taught me what to do. I'm not having reading her book and I'm not even checking in with my local you know, box store um, to know what to do. So, oh, that's getting too hard. I'm going to get rid of that dog and I'll just, I don't need a dog. So all these COVID puppies are starting to come back because unfortunately, you know, we're starting to see that all of these puppies are, um, you know, are, are having issues. So, you know, if we're able to, um, you know, hopefully figure things out and then we can take those dogs and start changing what we're doing with them and change the way we're like now actually taking them out for walks, that's pretty much all we need to do. Right. If we can do that, we're in good shape. The key is to understand dogs, to understand why dogs do what they do and understand how to help those dogs to realize that you are still in charge. Okay. So hunt, wait, eat. Make sure you take the, um, the dogs out. Make sure you take them out 15 to 45 minutes before you're planning to feed them. And also, You know, when your dogs aren't going out for long excursions anymore, the other thing is the COVID-19, right? You know how everybody seems to be gaining a lot of weight? Well, your dogs are getting fat too. Your dogs are gaining a lot of weight because sometimes you just have to cut them down. So first of all, a lot of you guys are giving them tons of treats. Well, I give my dogs tons of treats too, but what I don't do is give them tons of treats when they're not walking around and and using up that energy. So you might have to cut your dog back a little bit on food because the food, and especially with whatever you're feeding, make sure, of course, that it's something, if you read my book, you'll see all the good things to eat. It's really a great book and a great price. Um, I just wrote it basically in order to get everybody a kind of crash course in how to have a good dog and how to do things the right way. So it's called Happens, S-H-H-H, Happens, Dog Behavior 101. And if you look in the book, you will see what you should be feeding the dog. Now, the other thing is, if you start cutting the dog back on exercise and you're cutting back on calories because the dog is starting to get a little heavy, a little paunchy because you know, he's eating the same amount of food, but he's, you know, not exercising and he's not running around and, you know, nobody's taking him for long walks anymore. So you might be able to cut your dog down and you want to just cut them in in smaller increments and cut out your night meal. Typically, if you cut, let's say you're giving your dog two cups twice a day, let's say it's a 80 pound dog. Um, When that dog is the 80 pound dog and all of a sudden this dog is, you know, is eating two cups twice a day. You can't just cut the dog down. Oh, I'm going to cut him a cup a day. What you should do is cut him maybe like a quarter of a cup at night, because at night is when the dogs and people, if you eat late, right, that's when all the calories don't get burned. So it kind of sits in your body and turns into fat. 
so you can cut them down a little bit. But the other thing is, make sure you've got them not only on a high-quality food. I didn't say high-protein. I didn't say high-calorie, high-quality food. But it's also so, so important for you to have them on the vitamin supplement that's going to make sure that they've got everything they need and that they're not having some kind of, you know, of issue where, you know, they're, they're cutting down on their calories, but they're not really, um, you know, getting all the nutrition they need. So, you know, if you think about what normally would be, um, you know, you, you have to think about that, like, hey, I should give my dog vitamins. I mean, everybody should be taking vitamins. Your kids should be taking vitamins. Even if you're on the best food in the world, you really have to make sure that, you know, you're getting all the nutrition. And if you start cutting down on food, like when you're dieting, or if you're going to put your dog on a little doggy diet, especially, I mean, not that you shouldn't have them on vitamins anyway, but there's a great vitamin supplement that I use. We've been using for, I don't know, 14, 15 years um, called NuVet, N-U-V-E-T, NuVet.com. Um, and actually there's a, a discount code if you mention um, the code 86686, then you get 15% off and auto ship. And I think if you get two bottles, you get free shipping. Um, I'm not even sure how much a bottle costs, honestly, because I buy uh, eight bottles at my house every month and 16 bottles at the ranch every month. So, you know, it, it, it go, you go through it, but it's not expensive. But boy, oh boy, I mean, it reduces shedding. It keeps the dogs from getting nutritional issues like, you know, being overly hungry because they're never satiated. Um, think about, you know, a pregnant woman, right? A woman is, is due to give birth. Normally, they have cravings, right? And some women, if they're eating very healthfully um, and healthy uh, lifestyle, they don't technically, typically tend to crave a lot of um, crazy things. But you'll see, right, what's it, pickles and ice cream? Why pickles and ice cream? Okay, well, pickles, because it's sodium, the sodium-potassium gate, which runs the electrical system of your body and your heart. Um, And if you have enough of the sodium, right, if you have too much sodium, then what do you need to balance it? Bananas, which have a lot of potassium. So a lot of women crave banana splits. I don't know why. And people say, I don't even like bananas, but I crave bananas my whole pregnancy. Or the one funny one was the woman, young woman, I think she's about 28, very, very pretty. She, I asked her that question and she, she said to me, well, you know, I was raised a vegan, lifelong vegan, never ate meat, never, you know, had any butter, never ate anything from any animal source. When I was pregnant, all I craved was charcoal broiled cheeseburgers. That's all she wanted. And I looked at her son, who was maybe 12. I said, what's your favorite food? He said, charcoal broiled cheeseburgers. We were all laughing. And then I said to the other son, I said, what's your favorite food? He goes, sabret hot dogs. And I looked at her and I said, what'd you crave? She goes, yep, sabret hot dogs. So the baby is telling your body that it needs that food, that it needs those nutrients, whatever it is, even if it's junk, right? Even if it's just a way of delivering sodium or a way of delivering potassium. But whatever that is, you have to think that there's a reason that you are, um, you know, craving that. So the NuVet vitamins, and again, the code, it's N-U-V-E-T.com, NuVet, not N-E-W, it's N-U, 
V-like and veterinarian, ET, new vet. And the code is 86686. And you get 15% off for the lifetime. So I love it because they actually give you the discount forever. Um, But it's great stuff. And when you have a dog who, let's say, is stealing food from the table or getting angry or hangry and, and starting to get protective or possessive over food or over, you know, it's bowl or over a bone or over a like it's toy or or whatever it is a lot of times it's nutritional and the dog just very simply is hungry and he's you know he's getting hangry so if you give him a vitamin supplement like NuVet which to me there's nothing else even close to it but if you give them something that's proteinated and chelated that's really easily absorbable and broken down into the smallest absorbable form of amino acids, they can absorb that. And now all of a sudden, they're able to feel satiated and satisfied. And now they're not so likely to have those behaviors. Because if you're really hungry, and I always say to people, and I think it's like the best way of explaining it all, let's say you're at the Chinese buffet, which of course will never be at again because of COVID, but um, let's say you're at a Chinese buffet in the good old days, and, you know, you just ate, like, a huge Thanksgiving meal at your sister-in-law's, and you went there, and you all of a sudden have a lady who cuts in front of you, and she doesn't eat, she's very rude, and she just cuts right in front of you, and you look at her and, like, oh, go ahead, and then you wave on, let's say, five or six other people go, yeah, you can go, you can go, you can go. Well, why do you do that? Well, because you're not hungry, right? You're you're stuffed, so you don't want the food. So there's no motivation for you to be nasty to somebody because you don't want the food. But let's switch that around. You haven't eaten in three days, and this is your first meal. Let's say you were fasting or you were on a desert island or whatever. You haven't eaten in three days or you haven't eaten in one day. And now that same woman cuts in front of you, you're going to take her head off. You don't cut in front of me. Get out of my way. I was here first because you're hungry. So think about that. If your dog is hungry, he's more likely to be protective or possessive, have food guarding and resource guarding. And I call it food aggression, toy aggression, resource aggression. Let's call it what it is. Let's not call it resource guarding. Let's call it food aggressive, toy aggressive. The concept is if you are hungry, and if you are not sure where your next meal is coming from, you will be much more likely to be aggressive or protective over an item or food or an area that you associate with food than if you are not hungry and if you are satiated. So the first thing we should do is get the dogs on the NuVet. Um, I usually do, if you have a dog with issues, um, one uh, tablet, one wafer, which by the way, it's like doggy crack. So hide it in a very high shelf or somewhere where the dog can't get it. Cause they like, they will just, just devastate that they will eat the whole bottle if you let them. So if you have a dog who's got nutritional or behavioral issues, and you know, he's got issues, then it's good to give the dog one for every 25 pounds as a loading dose. And then you can keep them on that for 30 to 60 days, that, that amount. 
And then after that, when you start noticing that, oh, wow, he doesn't seem to be as, you know, protective over his food or he doesn't seem to be as hungry as he used to be, then you can cut him back to one for every 50 pounds. So if you have a tiny dog, like a four or five pound Yorkie, you can give him a half a tablet a day. But um, most dogs, I give one to two a day. And some of my Ridgebacks, um, I give four a day just because they'll urinate and defecate out anything that they don't use. They're all water-soluble, not fat-soluble. So you don't have to worry about giving your dog too much or too many of them. So, um, unfortunately, I can't believe the first half of the show is already up. It's crazy how much fun and how much information we can put out there so quickly. Um, So let's look at potentially... um, Everybody coming back next week and saying, hey, I've been walking my dog, hunt, wait, eat. I got the vitamins. I'm giving my dog the vitamins. He's definitely acting better. Oh, by the way, the vitamins reduce shedding and prevent cataracts. If you look at the the website, it's pretty amazing stuff. Um, So let's talk about that and more about it next week. And meanwhile, stay tuned for the second half of the show from Shelter Dog Service Dog. We'll be right back in a moment. And we're back with From Shelter Dog to Service Dog, as promised. Well, one of the nice things about this weather is it gives us time to work on training. Now, in the first part of this, the show, we talked about in the For the Love of Dog part, we talked about how to keep your dog sharp and get him walking around and being the same dog and, and having the same basic regimen and schedule. Well, with the service dog, if you're training your dog to be a service dog and there's a snowstorm, don't say, oh, I can't train today. Oh, yeah. Now you have a good excuse. You got all day to train. You can take your dog and you can start working on what we call safe spot or work on your downstay work for those of you who do obedience um, and try to start getting the dog to understand that even though he's not going out, that he's still working. One of the biggest faux pas that people make, especially with self-trained dogs or dogs from agencies that really don't train them a whole lot, is the dogs are not sharp enough. They, they don't keep the dogs long enough and spend enough time and money um, on, and, and money obviously not for self-trained, but a lot of what it is is just repetition and making sure that the dog understands what you want him to do, and when you want him to do it. So, for instance, if it's a snowy day or snowy week, like we had, you know, yesterday started a little bit, but, you know, today it was pretty bad all day, a lot of snow in the Northeast, and, you know, tomorrow it's going to be a kind of dig-out day, and then Sunday is going to be decent. Well, use the opportunity when you have a day like this to work on some of your downstay work, if that's how you're doing it, or what we call safe spot. So when you do the downstay work, the idea is to put time into it, right? So if you get your dog to do a downstay for like five minutes and you go, oh, my dog is perfect on his, you know, on his public access because he'll do a downstay for five minutes. Well, I haven't ever been on an airplane or train that was five minutes. So that's really not a long time. 
that's where the day like today, a day was rainy, a day that's snowy, a day that's really just yicky, put your dog in the down stay for three hours and see if he'll stay for that. Because I'll bet you, you see after five or six or ten minutes, all of a sudden that dog's not staying anywhere because all you've done is practice for five minutes. At Merlin's Kids, what we do actually when we train, and we have videos and, and all kinds of cool pictures, we can have, it's not uncommon, it's actually normal for us. We do a lot of group safe spot work, um, and we'll have, you know, usually about 16 dogs, and we have them all set up, and we put their safe spot mats down, and they go and they lay down, and they're told, you know, to lay down. And most of the time, we can just lay the mat down. Dogs will automatically find a mat and stay there. And guess how long they'll stay there? I mean, you know, we have to eventually put them back and work with other dogs, but oh, we'll do a three-hour, four-hour safe spot with 16 dogs, and none of those dogs gets up. If you can't do a four-hour safe spot with your dog or four-hour downstay uh, or place, you don't have a service dog because a service dog has to be able to do everything for a long time. So a good way to know if your dog is actually ready to do public access is when you take him out to places that allow dogs, and of course with COVID, it's just delightful to, to try to help you with that. But if you take your dog out to, let's say, you know, a box store like a pet store, or if you take him to wherever he's allowed, bring your mat with you, bring your downstay mat. We have safe spot mat. Bring it with you. Put your dog in a downstay in the, you know, in the aisle. Stand there for 15 minutes and you see if that dog gets up and I'll bet you he does. When you can keep that dog in, let's say, a 30-minute safe spot, we call it safe spot hold or a downstay, uh, it's different, but I'm not going to explain the difference for right now. Just remember, it's like, like kind of like a downstay. It's much more complicated, but that's pretty simple. So you put your dog in a downstay and another dog walks by and he gets up and you have to tell him to go down again, right? So then when you leave, you go, oh, he was a half hour in a downstay. No, he wasn't because he got up three times when dogs walked by or kids walked by or a toy fell or something squeaked. So we're talking about when you can get your dog to do three to four hours without getting up. And it takes time. Perfect time to do that. You're doing your homework. You're doing schoolwork. You're doing, you know, business. You're at a meeting, right? Put your dog in a downstay or safe spot and put him in there and leave him in there for as long as you can get, let's say two to three hours minimum. Once you've got that consistently, then you're going to take your dog, take your show on the road. You're going to start working on that same skill in maybe your front yard where there are more distractions. Don't go to the store right away. You've got to practice that skill in many, many different venues, which means you're going to practice it first where the dog is most comfortable, and you're going to get him really solid on that. And when you start building up on time, so let's say you're getting your downstay for one minute. Well, you're not going to go from, oh, I got it for one minute. I'm going to go to this restaurant or this, go on an airplane now because I can do it. One minute is nothing. So when you get him up to, let's say, 10 minutes, that's where you can then go in your front yard and practice the downstay. Now, your dog isn't going to stay for 10 minutes, but he's going to stay for maybe 30 seconds. So that's your new thing. So now the next time you start and you go and you do your 10 minutes, safe, your safe spot or downstay inside the house in the comfortable place, 
And then you're going to go and you're going to have the, um, you know, do the downstay in maybe your front yard. Once your dog can do, let's say that 10 to 20 minute or an hour or two hour, whatever, downstay in the other place, that's where you start going to, let's say, you know, a, a pet store and you start practicing the same thing. Now, remember, it's not going to be, he's not going to go into a two hours, you know, safe spot hold or downstay right there in the middle of a store, all right, in a pet store, because there are dogs, there's somebody barking, there's somebody peeing on things, there's a cookie falling, there's a kid screaming, and you're going to see that each new place you go, the dog is going to almost, well, uh, need remediation, need remedial um, help, because he is going to regress. And why? Because he's practicing in the place where he's the best. And that's where you start all your skills. You start where you're comfortable. If you're trying to teach a child to ride his bicycle, you don't send him on a huge ski slope to ride his, learn how to ride his bicycle. You find a flat area that's got grass on both sides, so God forbid he falls, it's soft. You might start him out with training wheels, and then you might be holding the seat for a while. So there's a way of teaching children and a way of teaching dogs. And the key is for everybody is to make sure you don't overmount your dog. Like don't overdo it. Overmounting is a phrase we use with horses where you take it like green horse, green rider. Um, I breed Lipizzan horses. I have Lipizzan stallions and mares and, and I love them. They're wonderful. They're super smart. And uh, they've taught me a lot about dog behavior because if, if you mess up with a horse, either with breeding, then you have a very expensive pet or nothing left. And if you mess up with training, you get yourself killed. With a dog, you might get bitten, but you're probably not going to get killed unless you somehow really mess up a very large dog Um, or your chihuahua chases you into traffic and you get whacked by a truck. But other than that, chances are you're going to be okay. So the goal is um, always... um, for us to be able to do things and set our dogs up for success, not for failure. And unfortunately, a lot of times people are causing their dogs to fail. Um, They're doing too much too soon. If you're self-training, which is what I'm assuming you're doing, if you're uh, in this part of the show, you're going to be the one who dictates how much that dog can take. Now, you always want to end on a positive note. So if your dog is having a really hard day or there are fireworks or it's raining or it's too hot, please be careful that don't make your dog go into a downstay on even a mat um, if it's not really well insulated because if it's insulated, um, then, you know, you can uh, hopefully, um, you know, at least make sure your dog isn't going to get a, a burn or something. But if it's cold, if it's windy, pick a day if you're doing a new skill or if you're going to a new location for an old skill, try to pick a day that you're relaxed, you got a couple hours, because if something should happen, for instance, let's say, you know, something happens and, you know, there's a, a police siren and your dog gets scared of it while he's in a downstay and he runs and you grab him. Okay, so, well, all right, well, now, oh, but I have to leave, right, because you rushed doing it. Always leave yourself at least another 15 minutes, like bare minimum, so that if something happens towards the end of your training session, it's not the end of your training session. So this way, 
you can set your dog up for success, not for failure. You're going to set him up for success basically by making sure that you're not asking him to do something that you don't think he can do. Now, sometimes dogs will surprise us very pleasantly and, and they'll be great. But most of the time, when you set the dog up to fail, uh, they they fail. So let's not do that, all right? Let's make sure that we teach the dog. And then once the dog has grasped that concept, so for instance, let's say you're doing a downstay and it's your, your first downstay in a supermarket, right? Because you're all the way up to that now. Um, and he's not protected as a service dog yet, but he's protected under the Service Dog Act of whatever state hopefully has it. You have to check your state laws uh, for that. But it's called typically like New York has New York Service Dog Act. New Jersey has New Jersey Service Dog Act. Each state has a different Service Dog Act or some of them don't have anything. But they protect the dog. If you are the trainer, even if you're not a paid professional, if you are trying to train your dog and it's legitimately for a disability um, for someone, whether it's you or someone else, then you're protected. Um, dog is not protected until your dog is able to uh, perform a task and answer. You have that opportunity, right? And you have to be able to answer, is this a service dog required because of a disability? You would say yes. Um, and then what task or job, right? What task is a dog trained to perform? Oh, he's trained to do blah, blah, blah. Okay. So you're not allowed to get give out your disability, but if your dog isn't at the point where he's task trained and you're doing your public access first, it's, I always think it's kind of crazy. At Merlin's Kids, what we do, and it's super successful, and I think we're probably the most successful um, service dog agency other than, you know, perhaps the design dog agencies that have been around. Um, and, and our percentages are way, way, way higher. We have 98, 99% success rate with dogs because we only take dogs we know have have uh, success and are, are going to be good, we don't just go breeding dogs willy-nilly in order to, you know, produce a million dogs and then, you know, only a few of them make it, uh, if that. Um, so, you know, a lot of that is, for us, is making sure that, uh, hey, Wispa D, Wispa D came to visit me. Hi, Wispa, I love you. You're such a good girl. So, if you have, um, oh, actually, I know what she's doing. She's actually in here telling me my blood sugar is low because um, I have not eaten. So that's why she came in from the kitchen all the way down three rooms. Um, and now she's sitting next to me staring at me. Interesting, though, there's my service dog, one of my many service dogs. So when your dog, you know, going back, when your dog is trained to do the task, like just happened with Wispa coming in, when the dog is already task trained, then you know the dog is going to be able to answer or you'll be able to answer on its behalf what tasks is it trained to perform to help you, right, for your disability, assuming you have a disability. So if you're doing public access and the dog is not task trained, why would you train the dog public access and then maybe he's not able to do the tasks? So we don't take puppies and have people who don't know how to raise dogs, you know, raise them, you know, lovely families, but we, all of our dogs, that's not how we do it. All of our dogs will go from, you know, we take them, we rescue them, or they have, we have puppies, a lot of Ridgeback puppies, but a lot of mixed breed puppies, lots of them. And we take these shelter dogs 
and we train them to do tasks. We do 17 different tasks. Doesn't mean that every dog is going to need to do all those tasks, but we train them to see which ones they're going to be best at. So the first thing we do is let's see how well behaved this dog is. Well, this dog is like Jen likes to say, this dog's on crack. Well, guess what? We're not even going to get there because how are we going to do even public access? Assuming, I mean, how do we do public access when we've got a dog who can't even focus for two seconds? So that's where we want to make sure that we're setting the dog up for success. So at Merlin's Kids, we actually train our dogs. Our professional behavioral team trains dogs to do all the tasks. Once we see which of those tasks they're good at, about a year into their training, it's that much. Then we start taking them out and we bring them for public access in the mall, in the restaurants, in the car. Um, if you have a dog who is not good in the car or he's panting constantly or um, very stressed in the car um, or vomits in the car, he's not going to be a good service dog unless you're going to never go anywhere or you're going to walk everywhere. Um, but chances are at some point he's going to be in a moving vehicle. So even something like that, if a dog gets motion sick, he can't be a service dog. So the idea, again, for us is to make sure that we're setting the dog up for success, we're not doing silly things, and we're not giving somebody a, a puppy to raise. That's why so many of these organizations, and there, and there, many of them are wonderful, well, several of them are wonderful, but that's why they don't have a really high success rate because the dogs are being, the puppies are being raised by people who mean well, but they're not professional trainers. And, and even professional dog trainers can't train service dogs. If you have somebody who's a local, you know, obedience trainer who says, oh, I can train a service dog for you, run, run fast because no, they can't. Being a service dog trainer is completely different. It's not obedience and making the dog sit and lie down on command. It's teaching a dog who already has the right stuff that, hey, I need you to do this. If A, then B, right? Like a math uh, equation. If A, then B. If B, then C. So if A, then C. So if you just train the dog on commands, that doesn't, I mean, that's not bad. It's fine. But it doesn't make the dog a service dog. It makes the dog obedient. So if you're trying to train a dog, now the exception to that is a dog who's going to, for, let's say, pick things up off the floor. You can give the dog commands for that kind of a skill because if you drop something, you're going to talk to the dog and say, we, we do get give. Um, some go, you know, people, everybody uses a different word. But if you're going to say to the dog, go get that, well, then obviously it turns into a command. But how about if you're nonverbal, right? So if you're nonverbal and you're trying to get somebody and you're trying to pick something, have the dog pick something up and the dog is waiting for a command, well, it's not going to get a command. Now, can you use a, ver uh, a hand command, like a hand signal, or a, a grunt or something? Of course. It, a, you know, a dog can learn anything. If I teach you that the word cucumber means sit, and I say cucumber, you, you're not going to sit. You're going to go get me a cucumber, and you're going to be like, okay, what do I do with this? And uh, well, I just said I want you to do something. Now, if you figure out that cucumber means sit, and let's say artichoke means lie down, 
So does the dog know what cucumber and artichoke mean? No, he doesn't know that at all. What the dog knows is that cucumber is the command for sit. So he doesn't understand the word sit like we understand what sit means. So it's a different language, right? Like C, right? S-I, C is yes in Spanish, but C in English is to, to look at something, right? So every language is different. And that's why people will say, oh, my dog speaks Spanish or my dog speaks you know, French or my dog speaks Hebrew. Well, no, your dog doesn't speak the language. Your dog understands that gobbledygook, that particular group of sounds or letters means a particular thing, but it doesn't understand the language. So when you're trying to teach your dog and you're trying to do like a safe spot, you really don't want to be talking to the dog constantly because just my thinking and, you know, what we've been doing at Merlin's Kids, and, and it's really probably state of the art at, at this point where, um, you know, people are just watching our dogs and, and people come every weekend and they'll they'll look and they'll say, there's 25 people or 20 people walking all in masks, all keeping socially distant. And let's say six or seven of our service dogs that haven't even been placed yet, and they're all on safe spot masks. And we've got people jumping over them, running, um, stepping on them sometimes, little kids, wheelchair, walker, and going right next to the dogs, right through, stepping over them. And the dogs don't move. And people always just look and they go, how do you do that? Well, five or six dogs is cool. When you do it with 16 and you're throwing cookies around and the yellow smiley face that Miller couldn't just not resist, but all these different things, when you're doing all these things, these are things that are training the dog to be automatic. Think about if you have a seizure alert dog. And it's very hard to train a seizure alert dog. Not that it's hard to train, but most seizures cannot be um, perceived by most dogs. We have some dogs that are really amazing that'll hit the actual electrical impulses, kind of like a backfire. But if you train a dog, and then what are you going to do? Train it that, like, if somebody's having a seizure, what is this person going to go? I'm having a seizure. Come. Right? You think about it. You have to make it automatic. And to me, a service dog is not an obedience dog. A service dog is a tool that works automatically. Think about autopilot in an airplane. You don't have to tell the plane everything to do because there's a computer, right? There's an automatic command. So your dog, your service dog, should be automatic. It shouldn't ever have to be told what to do. If you still have to tell your dog to lay down under the table and not pick food or, or bubble gum off the underside of the table, and you've been training your dog for two or three years or even two or three months, you better get a different dog or get some professional help. Um, by the way, uh, we have had a lot of people emailing us and asking us how they can get their potential service dog, uh, future service dog trained by us. We do do that. Um, you would have to email our office um, and you can just go on Facebook and uh, private message us on Merlin's Kids Service Dogs um, and you can do that and we'll be happy to help you train your dog if your dog passes our very strict uh, test because we want to make sure that the dog is not going to be food reactive. I mean, we can fix it and I can certainly fix it, but when you're in your weakest moment and you need that service dog, assume that your dog is going to do exactly what you don't want it to do. 
So, you know, we're, we're trying again to help everybody who needs help so that you guys are all able to have a good dog, have a dog that's well-behaved, that does its skills automatically, especially a mobility dog or a seizure dog or a diabetic alert dog. And we just want to help people so that you're not setting your dog up for failure and setting yourself up for failure. And we are trying to get some kind of standard, some kind of, well, you know, testing procedure, some kind of protocol that I don't, honestly, I don't care if you're fake service dog, and I'm not talking to you guys necessarily, but you know who you are if you're listening, you're probably not listening because you don't want to hear because you know I don't like that. But let's say you're training your own service dog, your own dog to become a service dog, and dogs having some issues. And now somebody with a fake, completely fake dog, fake service dog is, you know, trying, the dog is lunging at your dog, your dog's fearful, you don't know how to handle it. So your dog gets bitten by the other dog and then gets in a dog fight. Well, I've had a real problem with that because your dog maybe was on its way to being a service dog. And now your dog, because you didn't know what to do in that moment, now your dog is going to be petrified of other dogs potentially or become aggressive, or you're going to become nervous and anxious around other dogs. You're going to make your dog more nervous and anxious. So you know, it, it's really important, and we should all want to have some kind of certification, national certification, not just through each agency. So think about that for a minute, that a lot of the people who are self-training dogs to be service dogs, you guys are fighting that. You're like, hey, Janice, I don't want to have any kind of uh, certification, but you should want that. Because we will help you. And if your dog isn't good enough to be a service dog, it shouldn't be in that. It shouldn't be. I mean, people throw dogs on the plane all the time. Right now, it's you can't do it anymore. But people were putting their pets and their wannabe service dogs on airplanes, and the dogs are freaking out. Why would you do that to your animal when you claim you love the dog? Why would you scare the living daylights out of a dog that's not ready? Because maybe if you had just learned and taking the time to do what you were supposed to do, maybe maybe the dog would have been fine and we could have gotten him through that. But certifying him would mean that nobody could be faking it anymore. And if you got a service dog, a legitimate service dog from a reputable agency, or if you start and you train, let's say you train with Merlin's Kids or you train with one of the few really good organizations out there who can do this work, then at least you know that your dog is going to pass that and there are not going to be other dogs that are going to be ill-behaved that are going to be trying to hurt your dog. So, you know, it, it kills me because everybody's like, oh, I know my dog won't pass the test, so that's why I don't want my dog. Um, I don't want certification. Well, that's kind of selfish. You should say, I want my dog to be perfectly behaved so that he can be an example to other people who want to train their own dog. That's where we're going to have to leave off for today because unbelievably an hour goes so quickly. Please, please, please stay safe. Practice everything. Do a two or three hour safe spot or, or downstay. Start practicing things. Get better and better every day. Have a wonderful, healthy, happy, and beautiful weekend. Stay warm and stay safe.